lot of the great photographers, they did the best work when they didn't know how to do it. Uh, but they were just enthusiastic about it. To be both an artist or a photographer, you have to be an entrepreneur. You have to be smart about it. And you have to change the business model all the time. If you just have a camera with you and you take photos. Hello, fellow photographers. In this episode, I'm talking with Thorsten Overgaard about his photography, Leica cameras and much more. Thank you so much for joining us today on this episode. Make sure you're subscribed if you want to be notified when I post a new episode. And also, there is one thing I would love you to do. I would be very thankful if you could go and give this podcast 5-star rating and a review. If you like this content and you think other people might enjoy it as well, feel free to take a screenshot and throw it out on your Instagram story or share it with your friends. All the information can be also found in the description. Now, without any further ado, let's talk about photography. My guest today is an internationally renowned, award-winning portrait and reportage photographer who travels the world searching for the perfect photo, teaching and writing about photography, Thorsten Overgaard. Hello Thorsten, how are you doing today? Thank you for joining me. Hello. Yeah, it's nice to be, it's like international forum across uh, the globe here. So yeah, I feel good it's Sunday morning here in Paris. It's a little bit of rain outside, but I'm inside, so... I'm doing good. I have my coffee and I even have an ashtray, so I'm like in camera. So it's good. Perfect. So you bought your first camera at the age of 11 and at the age of 14, mm-hmm. you built a six by six wooden camera. So was photography something you were always interested in? And can you tell me more about that camera? Well, uh, I mean, I just did uh, a book here recently where I do a photograph which was kind of interesting because I was sitting in the morning and writing on it in a cafe bar in the harbor. Um, and I didn't know, I just wanted, it just like a, a cool title and I thought, let's, let's just do this. And then as it evolves, I find out like, why do I photograph <laughs> what? And there's like different phases of it. And one of the things I say in the book, well, I used to say in workshops when people ask, like, how do you just, how do you get into photographing? I used to say that, well, I just had a camera with me in school and we were like five other guys who had a camera. So I just like to take pictures and you took pictures and the girls in the school wanted to see the pictures. And so that's how I started. But then later, like I said that for a few years and thought like, that doesn't make sense. How did I get the camera to begin with? And that's also in the book that my mother had uh, a boyfriend after she divorced and he had a camera, an icon. And he was very enthusiastic about photography. And he had this uh, Nikon with a 51.4. And I actually never really used a camera, but I saw his pictures and his enthusiasm for it. And that's what brought me to get my first point and shoot. And then somehow I just, I was just 100% into the subject in a matter of no time because, uh, yeah, I, I, I had the camera with me in school and, and there was other guys who was also into photographing. We had a dark room in school and later had a dark room home and I wrote my own film and I read a lot of magazines about it. Mostly the, the technical things was what I was into. I must have uh, borrowed books on the library uh, because I, I know that I saw some of the negative songs photos early on. And yeah, and, and quite a few, like five or six of these photos that I really, that really stood out. But I never wondered who who took them. <laughs> it was like, it was almost like some, some, you know, some dead guy in the past or something. Uh, and it's a little bit still like that, that I look at photos that I, I look at photos. I don't look at the photographer, uh, 
but then sometimes I go into like who took this or what's what's the story. But that's more like from a career viewpoint or or just interested. That's it's an interesting person or something like that. But that's basically how I did it. And uh, and because I read the photo magazines and I also went to I did an internship at uh, a photographer. So that was that was did like uh, interiors and stuff. So I had big Sina cameras, and I really like wow, I want a Sina camera. So Sina cameras like you have like basically this tripod on wheels in a studio, and it's like this thick, and then you can adjust the camera for anything, you know. And you have this big four times five negative, four times uh, five inch, four times five inch, like ten times twelve centimeters. And of course, also you had Hasselblad. That was six times six. So that's what I wanted. But of course, I couldn't buy it. I was like just a teenager. And uh, and somehow I just decided it's easy. I can because when you see the scene, it's just basically like a, a matte screen and then a, a lens, and then you have to have darkness between. So what I can do that. <laughs> so, I, so I built my own in, in the basement. It's truly in the basement. I found some wood, wooden plates and then. I put together a camera and then I stole a lens from my mother's confirmation camera. It also had like this uh, adjustable thing, and then I built my own matte screen and film uh, uh, film cassettes, and and I and I even made so it was tilt shift and everything. So it took some test photos and I developed them, and then I was kind of done with that project. I mean, I still have the camera; <clears throat> it's, it's a little bit uh, shaky, so I have to put it back together again with glue or something. So somehow I was very much into trying to understand how does cameras work and light work and uh, aperture, everything about a camera, like what is it, where does what sit and what does it do? Uh, that, that was like uh, the main thing. There's a lot of concentration on gear and the technical things in the beginning. And then you say, why, like, did, I can still wonder, like, why did I want to photograph? I just, it was just something like, this is me, you know? It's kind of like, you give somebody a guitar and they can't play guitar, but then if it's something for them, they're like, they keep keep training and, and trying, and then one day you learn it, <laughs> and then you become a guitar player, and then you get into make the music, you know, and and all stuff around it, and maybe even other instruments, you know? So that's that's kind of how it, how it started out for me. And did you imagine uh, you're gonna do photography for a living? Did you want? I did actually imagine it when I was a teenager, but, but I was like, no, I don't want to do that. And then somehow I still, went back and forth that could be a thing but it was not wasn't something that i considered like uh really interesting so i think uh, anything where you could learn about photography i was into but i don't really so i didn't really see myself as as having that as a job i thought it was meant for something else and i don't know what that was but and uh and you can say as it went on um i started an advertising agency when i was 19 because that, that was like the thing at that point that seemed uh, smart to do and that's what i did and it was i didn't get back to photography for real till i sold it in 2000 um and that's basically when i picked up photography and then at some point i'm a photographer i'm, I'm a right-on photographer and that's what i did and then you say the whole of course the whole world have changed with internet and everything else so today Everything I do is around photography, but there's a lot of different things I do. But you could say the core is still creating pictures, you know. Uh, but the, the whole business model of, of being a photographer have changed for everybody in the last 20, 25 years. So as you didn't, as you didn't only work in photography-related business, how did you actually got back into it once you, you know, started 
doing different projects, different work? Well, what happened when I sold the advertising agency and the internet agency was mainly the internet agency that I wanted to buy. Uh, I did different projects. I had all kinds of startups I wanted to do. So I was doing that. And then one thing I also wanted to do is I wanted to take uh, great photographs where you could see the soul of, of people. And it's basically I was writing interviews about entrepreneurs. And to go with the interviews, I needed to take some good photos. I wanted to do them myself. And the idea of kind of like uh, large format photos where you have the eyes are in focus and the ears is slightly out of focus and the background is blurred. Uh, so I got a Leica uh, 52.2 for that and a film camera, different Leica R film cameras. And then I went on with that and then I just had it. I had uh, editors to say, hey, can you do more photos? Can you can you go photograph this for us, you know, because they like the photos. And that's kind of how I thought, okay, I'll, if this is fun, I'll do it. And then, of course, I got into um, the business model of things because then I thought, okay, how can I do more of this? Like, how can I make money on this? How can I get to do what I want to do? How can you get it published? Because you say, at least for me, when you take photos, then it's about publishing. There's no point in making a photo and not publishing. So it's almost like when you take a photo, the, the, the greater pub publication you can get it out in, the better. Um, so I started researching like with uh, mag more magazines and newspapers. So I worked with uh, some Danish newspapers. And then I got into Getty Images, which is the, it must be the world's largest, largest photo agency now. So it's based like everybody around the world photograph fashion shows and everything, and then and news, and it goes into a pool. So media all over the world can just pull pictures from there all the time, like a few minutes after the photos were taken. And I worked also with Associated Press. So that's kind of my way that, okay, this must be the way to be a photographer today, that you get your photos worldwide. Um, and you said that worked for a while, but that business model or media doesn't really pay for for photos anymore. And you also said you pull your images from Getty Images, right? Yeah, the way it worked with Getty and, and others is that you, it was like 50-50. So you could say if, if Time Magazine or somebody buys a picture, then normally you could say in the past, it goes by size and front page and so on. So maybe you get $300 for the picture. So that's split with the picture agency. And then... The first step Getty did was to try to do a micropayment or microstock. So, I mean, suddenly they would sell all the pictures for like $8 or $4 for unlimited use. And, and the big media have subscription. So, suddenly when you sold a picture to Time Magazine, it wasn't $300. It was like $4 or $8. Okay. And then, and then Getty, was, of course, said, well, we need to make money. So, we're going to change the percentage. So, we're going to take 70 and you get 30 and I said, no, I'm, gonna re I'm not going to resign with this, so I pulled my archive. Um, so you could say that business model is a death, and that, I mean, that's it's very, you could say, in very short, like, photographers of day, it's, of course, you have to make pictures. It's about making the photos and making the content. The content is always going to be worth something. And then you have to find the business model. How do you how do you get this out so you can make a living? Um, you could say in some countries you could be paid by the government, maybe in Cuba still or somewhere. Uh, other places you have to, I mean, you have to figure out, I mean, so to be both an artist or a photographer, you have to be an entrepreneur, you have to be smart about it, and you have to change the business model all the time. But the key is still that you make good photos and preferable the photos that you like to make. Um, so, so you can say that's basically what I, what I did. Like, I, I, there's a lot of photos that is not available uh, online, and I had this intention of putting everything online. But it's kind of like a lot of the things that... I would do for Getty, then would be you go do Fashion Week, 
And the greatest photos I do a person with is backstage. So they're kind of timeless and beautiful pictures that you could put in a gallery or in a book. Uh, the ones you do of the fashion itself is also can be beautiful, but it's only maybe interesting for six or 18 or 36 months. Mm. Then nobody really cares unless it's very special. And then what gets him is, and, and media mainly was interested in was like uh, celebrities in the front row. So they can go take pictures of Beckham or something, something like that. And, and that's like, that's not timeless unless you make it very special, but you don't because it's shitty light, you know, so you use flash or something. So I didn't want to do that. Um, so, so, so that business model is out. I mean, I would say there's probably still somebody who can make money on Getty, but it's not many hundred or thousands of photographers that is hired by the media because they don't they don't pay for pictures. They get them from Microsoft, and now they also give the camera to the journalist, and then they can make whatever. So, do you think their can. system works because there are still people willing to uh, sell their images for? A bargain? Um, yeah, and you would say it works. I mean, Getty's image, or Getty Images' uh, mission statement is to own all pictures in the world. And that's basically what he's done. They bought up one library after the other. Uh, so any historic picture, you go Getty Images, and then they sell it at Microsoft, and you could say, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's good, good enough business for them. And you would say, as long as they have content, they're always going to be in business. Uh, being the one supply to them is not fun because you don't really get paid. But but you would say that you get into this whole artistic uh, consideration that you also have in the music industry, that everything is moved from CDs and vinyl to online streaming. Uh, so, so, so that's what I mean. Like To be an artist, you have to be an entrepreneur. It is like today, like... Uh, to get paid the same for your music on Spotify as you did when you sold a CD, the listener have to listen to the entire album 400 times. <laughs> and that's highly unlikely. So that means that, God knows, maybe you get 10% of what you used to do. But you also get access so that, to much more people than uh, you had before when people had to buy the CD. Now, now anyone can listen your music for free. So maybe that multiplies, uh, multiplies the amount of audience you get from those kind of services not sure yeah, you, 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 to yeah, you could say, you but... could, yeah no you could say i mean you can have a that's the that's the great thing and that's why you have to be an instrument you can be uh you can be smart about it because now you can actually have a national breakthrough from your own computer because you can record like we talk music you can record music on your own computer and you can spit it out and it's out there in three days and then you can sell it worldwide you just have to be known Good. somehow so yeah. So, so that's that's great, you know, and that's you you have to think with those things. But this thing in, you could say, even the educations for photographers have been based on that you go to school for three or five years and learn how to press the shutter, which is like how can it take that long? But okay, that's what you do. You get a piece of paper, and then you get hired by a newspaper. They give you a car, they give you cameras, they give you a salary and retirement and everything and holiday in Denmark seven weeks a year. That doesn't exist anymore. So you cannot, and it's funny they still do the educations like this because for the last 15, 20 years, more than 50% of photojournalists that came out from school would end up as freelancers. But they were like educated to be working for media, you know. So it's just, um, yeah, so that's like the, the entrepreneur mind versus uh, working for a salary. 
and and I have a funny story because I have twins, a boy and a girl, and when they were like 14, my daughter came and said, Dad, I, I want to make some money. Uh, what can I do for you? And I said, okay, you can go sort my CDs, you can clean this, you can do this. And then she went on that for, for three days. Uh, and my son, he came some hours of the day after and said, hey, I also want to make some money. He said, well, you can, you, you can do this and this. And I said, how much do I get paid? I said, I don't know. I said, I, want, I need to know how much I get paid. I said, what's wrong with you? Like, you're my son. You're supposed to be an entrepreneur. You're not supposed to be somebody who just needs a monthly salary or something like that. No, but that's what he wanted. So, okay. um, but for me, that's so unnatural. For me, it's natural that, wow, I want to do that. You know, I want to uh, I want to build a house there and open a hotel. I want to do something. And then I know I'm going to figure out along the way how, how do I make a business out of it. I wouldn't sit and not do anything till I knew what I got paid. But that's the difference that you could say that if you want to be a professional photographer, you have to be willing and able to travel along that way that you just know I like to take photos and I believe in myself. And then I'm going to figure it out. And that's, uh, you could say, for all artists, that's the problem. I mean, if you're a writer or musician or whatever, is that that you see something I want to do that and you decide I'm going to do that and then you go do it. Um, and a lot of people can, well, a lot of people don't really see, but then they, they have ideas and they think somebody else is going to do it on one day, maybe. But you have to do it, you know. Uh, and many things, you it's first when you do it, then you find out, oh, okay, that's not how it's done, but, but I'm on the way, so I can just adjust, you know. And then things change. You get internet, you get, well, you get the world closes down for a year, one and a half years. So how do you deal with that? And there's always something happening, you know, that and, and it can be good for you, it can be bad for you. But you but you have to change with it, you know, and that's the entrepreneur mind and, and uh but you can say to take photos you don't need an entrepreneur mind, you need uh you can say the main quality of of being a good photographer is that you want to take photos. Uh so you don't have to make it into a job to do it, you know, you can still make great photos and you could maybe even make some kind of business out of it or whatever you want to do with whatever your ambition is that you want to make some nice photos or you want to make your own book or a website or whatever, you can still do that and then do something else for a living, you know. I mean, I see a lot of those because most people in my workshop, they're not, I have a few that is semi-professional that wants to be professional and also became professionals, but the majority is people who are well off and have like a company or some job in finance or the film directors, whatever, they're, they're doing something for a living and then photography is just something that they're very enthusiastic about and they're very ambitious about it. So that's why they do a workshop and want to know more about it. So if you want to be, uh, let's say, uh, successful making a living with photography, you have to be entrepreneur. Right to yeah, that's that. To... I mean, I don't. That's hard. Yeah, that's hardly any other way in it. And you could say, I mean, one of the things I do, I said, I, I look at photos. I don't. I'm not really into photographers. I'm not like fan of photographers. But then I have certain photographers and also artists where I will study the story. And you could say now that we talk about it that you have uh, people like Helmut Newton and uh, Ansel Adams and so on. They were entrepreneurs because. I don't know the exact story of Helmut Newton, but you can say, how did Helmut Newton become Helmut Newton? And one of my uh, 
ideas or theories of him is that he did uh, the Wolford ads, and, and you think, how, how do I show Wolford uh, visually? Well, you have to have long legs. And then he find a photograph with long legs, or he found somebody who had long legs to begin with, and he made them look <laughs> even longer and more sexy. Um, and that's kind of how he got into his uh, style of photographing women. And the actual Wolford pictures, you don't you don't see them. He doesn't have them. He only have the Polaroids. So he published the book with Polaroids. You know, he also did the magazine. So he has been hustling around and finding out how can I make a living on this. And some of it is like come some time come and ask, hey, can you photograph Wolford? And then that leads to somewhere, and then you find, wow, that's like that's pretty cool, you know. But I don't need Wolford to do long legged women. So I'm just going to do this, you know. And then Sal Adams also. I mean, he if you read his story, there is like a, a bio about him. That is written uh, by his assistant. That is kind of it's pretty okay. And you could say he started out very artistic because back when he started out, there was this whole thing that painting is the thing, and photography is nothing. It doesn't really fit in. We don't need photography. We have painters. So in the beginning, uh, a lot of photographers they would add chemicals or paint to the pic- to the pictures to make them look like painted, you know. And 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 Sal Adams also he, he went. Kind of term straight photography, which is that you photograph with a camera, you do what you can do in a dark room, but you don't do any painting on the photography. And then, so that was actually a big step, uh, you could say, for him. And he was, it was very controversial back then. That's you read some of the old articles, they're like, yeah, and so that makes it easier than other things. He's a genius, you know. But that, so that was like, uh, it wasn't like an easy ride necessarily. And then he went into trying to become a real artist and have galleries and agents represent him and have prints that he could sell really expensive. You make packages of like 10 or 20 or 30 as Adams photos in 20 or 50 limited boxes and sell them. And that was okay, but it's not really something you could make a great living on. And if you look at it, then he had his breakthrough, I think he was just in the beginning of the 30s, when uh, he inherited uh, a gallery out in the nature park in the U.S. and started selling postcards of his photos. He would also sell small prints, but uh, and I figured that he made, no, I forgot it now, if he made more than a million dollars a year, probably, that's the first time where he really started making money and really got his photos into distribution, his postcards. Uh, not super cheap postcards, but still, like you said, there's a long way from having this idea that it's going to be like a Picasso or something. I'm going to sign it and it's going to be really valuable. And then you go sell postcards and that's your break. You know? So, so that's also hustling, you know, and then, yeah, he's been doing other things after that, you know? So, 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 so this thing being an inspirational concept, you know, that's been done before, you know, uh, and you would say all, almost all great men in history is somebody who thought, wow, it could be had like trains underground or we had like, Whatever idea they had, if they could drive, have a motorized car, or something like that, and then they went on making it, you know. And that's the that's the main point that you go make it. You try to do this thing, you know. And of course, you try to do something, you stumble into that. Oh, that's not how it's done, or this, but they want this, and then you adjust it, and then somehow you find a model that works. Okay, let's talk about a little bit about your photography because uh, one of your models yeah. is always wear a camera. Right. And do you know how many pictures mm-hmm. you actually take every year? Um, on 2009, I started counting because 
that's when I really got the, the digital like M9. And at that point, it was 117 pictures a day. And then I counted like six, seven years later, I was exactly the same. So that's kind of like how many pictures I take, 117 a day, hours or a year. And then you would say the next question is like, how many of them do I edit down to five pictures? And I actually never really counted. I mean, sometimes it looked like maybe it's 10, maybe it's 20% or something. But I never had this hit rate thing. I have a lot of people in my workshop because they're very concerned that they have a high hit rate. And the hit rate, you could say that's the idea that you go like any song, you put in a roll of film with 36 pictures and you go make 36 masterpieces. Yeah. And that's not how it works, you know. And I used to say, Henrik Sebasong, he has 250, 350 pictures in circulation that is like really well known. He has a handful of real iconic, so he has to have a very high hit rate compared to us, but that's 30 years of production. So you could say, if you can make one good photo a month and you keep doing that for 10 years, you have 120, you do it for 30 years, you have 360, so you beat Henrik Sebasong <laughs> in that way. Um, so, but, but the main thing is always where a camera will have. Uh, days or whatever where I just say, okay, I'm not wearing a camera. Uh, for whatever reason, I'm just taking a holiday. And and usually it's a bad idea. Sometimes it's okay idea, but but you have to let go of like, okay, I don't have a camera, so just forget it. You know, I'm not taking pictures. And you can see something happening, but but you kind of see, you can also have a camera and see something happening. You didn't get it, or you decide, no, I'm not going to do it. Sometimes you regret it and so on. So that's kind of like maybe you could say the training is you know when to take the photo and when not to because you don't have to take photos of everything that happens. And something you have to leave to the other people that's like their style. <laughs> and I mean, I've, I've walked around here in, in Paris and then Leila, my fiance, will say, hey, wow, take a picture of this. I said, no, I want, like, not not my thing. Uh, so you also have a camera, so I said, no, you, you take the picture. So, so we have some fun with that. But, uh, but that's the main thing, and, and it's it's very interesting. I went to an exhibition. There's a new exhibition of Henrik Sebastian here in Paris, and I went to see it, and and I have sorted it after years, and it's actually very, I would say, if you if you like self confidence in photography, you go look at that. It's only in France. I don't speak French or read French, so I just look at the pictures like <laughs> like a kid. So. But the interesting thing to see in the exhibition, also sort of in the book, is that you can see how he got a camera and he's just fumbled around with it. And he did what everybody does and what I did also. Then you take a picture of something that you think this is interesting, but it's not really something. It's just, I don't know, it's just like there's an urge to take a photo of it, but it's not actually really a photo. And it's almost like you can see it taking six, ten years or something before he gets into something for real, you know. And it looks very much like he worked in brushes or projects. And I'm pretty sure he didn't bring, he didn't have a camera with him every day. He, there must have been a lot of time where he didn't go out and he didn't have a camera with him. Um, he would say that's also like if you look at many uh, professional photographs, they don't have a camera with them unless they get paid to go to some country and do a reportage or a story from there. Or they go in the studio and take some photos that they're paid for. Uh, but that's really a thing that, I mean, you have to have a camera at you at all times. It's kind of not note piece of paper and, and a pen. So you can write ideas if you're a poet or a writer, you know. And I think that's actually, that makes you very productive when you have a camera all the time. I can see that one of the reasons I went back here to Paris is like it's a nice city, but it's also, I was here 
some weeks ago, and also was doing some project where I was looking at my archive, and I have a lot of great photos from Paris. And 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 it sounds weird, but I didn't expect that I would have a lot of great photos from Paris. I think I, I thought it would be New York or London or something. So I would almost say like Paris is very easy to photograph in. I mean, the light and the beauty of the place, and you can go anywhere and you can find uh, interesting stuff. When you take that many photos uh, mm -hmm. every day, uh, what is your yeah. process? Do you edit every day? Do you uh, come back or do you edit once per week? Or no, I edit that? like, uh, yeah, I edit every day. Yeah, so here in Paris, I've, I made almost a schedule because it, it's light until like 10 o'clock. The sun goes down 10 o'clock in Europe now. So I'll just go out like 7.30 or something and photograph to 9.30. So it's like two hours. Uh, and it's not uh, necessarily even photographing. I might even just be walking from a restaurant or to somewhere else or want to see something. So it's not like I'm hunting photos. But I just found that's a really good time of day, uh, almost every day, to take photos because the, the, the sunset is the sun is going low and then it becomes the sunset. It's just very interesting light. And those photos I'll edit the next day, then I'll get up and have breakfast, and then I edit photos, and sometimes I make them into a newsletter or something. And uh, yeah, we juggle a little bit. I just need to make one masterpiece a day. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But and it's almost like I do. I mean, it, it, you just don't know. I mean, for example, the, the other night we were walking down the street to the hotel, and then we walked by an alley, and it's, it's a very beautiful alley. Or, small street and there's a couple walking there and they're hugging and kissing and first i was like no i'm not gonna do the photo but then like no i'm gonna do the photo and i walked back and then that actually stopped kissing so i said can you just do that again because i did actually take a photo of them <laughs> but they're not kissing so so i had the whole frame and everything so i said can you do this again and he, he was a little bit confused i just showed him the picture on the screen it was black and white I'm like wow it's cool and then they kissed. And do you ever and get nervous in situation like this? Are no. you ever like I'm I'm nervous about taking this picture or something like that? Sometimes you you sense that this is going to be trouble. Uh, I mean I don't need the bad. And sometimes you you could say it's on the edge. You know you're going to take the photo and then maybe they're going to be surprised or something. You know, but you can handle it because you get like thumbs up and or something and then everything is fine. You know they're not going to run after you or take out of night or something, you know. So, so I never had anybody going really crazy or anybody where I left with a photo and, and I felt that like they're really upset or pissed about it, you know. They're always like, you know. So so that's also, that, that's like a personal style or limit, you know. And also the type of, of people I take. I don't take homeless, I don't take crazy people, I don't... Uh, like people crying and like I don't, I just don't do that, you know. So so. And what and is it's the funny reason? Because I have lots of. Because you want to it's make just art. Not my stuff. Or is it your? No, it's it's more like I don't want to look at that shit, you know. You would say I don't I don't what's I don't sit with the television on. I don't like television. I don't like television news. I don't like the language they have today of like making drama out of nothing, in, uh, in documentaries and stuff. Uh, and I don't like, I mean, I don't agree that that you have a country at war, for example, and you go photograph the most extreme, upsetting 
things, which are typically things that is like a drama is like loss or threat of loss. That's typically the photograph you would do when you would show the hopelessness. And I'm the opposite. I want to show hope. And you would say one of the parts I did back when I kind of got into camera photograph was uh, after the tsunami. So that became a book and, and DVD and a website. And I did lectures and stuff on also. So I went to the, to uh, Southeast Asia after the tsunami. So the tsunami hit, the, I think it was the 25th or 26th of December. And a lot of people died in Sri Lanka and India and there. And I went about three weeks later. And you say at that point you didn't have any dead bodies floating around or anything. So that was kind of what you had, the ruins and so. And I had to have some photos of ruins to show this is how bad it was. Like you went down to goal and it's like the whole, the whole place was like there was no city anymore. It was just concrete and bricks, you know, floating around. But the main thing I wanted to show was the rebuilding, that the kids went back to school and people were rebuilding the houses. And uh, so, so you say that's the hope side of it. That's what, what I want to, you could say, I, I, I say this thing, like you have to play the music you want to hear, you know. And it's like, that's the music I want to hear, you know. Um, so, so it's never really been a question for me. I mean, so it's also a matter of personal integrity. Of course, I wouldn't go to a war zone and make dramatic pictures of the world that's falling apart. Mm -hmm. And then, because I don't agree with it, you know, that's not how it should be. And you could say, even here, we had COVID. I mean, I said, I haven't, I haven't taken photo of one single person with a mask. Except there was one lady in Florida that had a mask with a big smile on. So you could tell. <laughs> you took the, you looked at her. And you couldn't. It was like it was her smile, you know. But then, of course, I've been around uh, different places where people would sometimes wear masks. But as general thing is, like, you can't use a picture of somebody with a mask, you know. And like, what? I mean, this is what I'm going to use it for, you know. People are not supposed to wear masks, and 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 I disagree with the whole thing. Um, so, and then you have others, you have Peter Turner, he did a whole book of people with masks in Paris and New York. I'm like, what the, what the heck? <laughs> but that's just, that's a personal thing. You say he also comes very much from news photographs, so it makes totally sense that, that yeah, that's what I'm going to do. You know? um, but I don't think, I don't think that's something to celebrate. I don't think it's, uh, you could say you're a war photographer like Jan Graub in Denmark. It's like, you probably have a purpose with doing it that you want to, you know, some personal excitement and satisfaction in it somehow, but that's also an idea that you want to tell the world that something is happening and something should be done about it. And I mean, I, I think that's a tough one. Like you can say, and Ralph have been going to some of those trouble areas for like the last 20 years. And it's not that, uh, I'm, I'm sure his photos haven't changed as much as he would like to have changed. It's not like the, the country normalized, it's still the same, you know? Um, so that's a, that's a tough one. As you said, that's just not my working area. Just as like, I mean, you could also do news and that's like highly popular, gets a lot of, of clicks or looks or whatever, but it's just not my thing, you know? Um, yeah, and I don't do landscapes. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and you could say that if you go back to like being an entrepreneur, um, and as an artist, then it is that, that my advice has always been like, you start out with, okay, I want to take photos. So that's what you do. But then you should take the type of photos that you want to take, that you feel proud of and, and you're happy about. And then that business model comes in, like, how do I get other people to buy or look at these pictures? 
the wrong way is to go in and say, okay, this is where the money is. Like I'm going to be a wedding photographer or I'm going to be this or that because that's where the money is. Or you try to copy somebody because you think uh, that's the way it's done, you know. And, uh, and and that's one of the things also you study artists like photographers and musicians. It's like it's not, you might think that that person is known for that or made his money from that, but often, no, they made the money from something else. Or the real business is actually something else. You could say, like, if you're a musician today, yeah, you might have 60 million plays a month on Spotify, but that's not where you're making money. But from the outside, it looks like, wow, if I can get my music on Spotify, I'm going to be like the new something. But that's not where the money is. The money is in sponsorship or doing concerts or something else, you know, or you're doing your own fashion brand on the side. So yeah. when you are hired for commercial work, it's usually the type of stuff you do. You wouldn't let yourself to be hired for something that you wouldn't agree on, like taking picture <laughs> of. But you say it's almost like I don't get hired. I just I'm just in this constant holiday drinking coffee. Okay. <laughs> but no, but that's you would say the moment. Uh, I did have some some magazines and newspapers and they might work really well with, and I had like. I had this amazing editor of, of uh, the biggest newspaper in Denmark, and he loved buildings and he loved the local city. And when I came and I, I said, "Listen, you need to do local stories. I want to go around with a camera and make a story, a picture story every day, just one picture and a short subset of, of whatever was happening. I don't know what's happening, but that's what I want to do. That's real life." And he said, "Fuck yeah, let's do it." And he was really enthusiastic about that, and he was also enthusiastic about buildings. So we would do the had a monthly magazine. So we would actually do, I would go out and photograph a building from top to bottom. And then we would do the whole story about this. And it would be 18 pages. And like nobody does 18 page uh, stories in magazines because everybody knows it has to be short and sweet and nobody wants to read long things. And I totally disagree that if you're into something, you want to read a lot about it. You know? So I found one soulmate there, like he agreed with that. And he was also a good client. Uh, but then when I gave out get emails and I showed it to the press, it's like, uh, I have a few magazines that know I travel and they want me to do portraits and stuff like that. Um, what else you could say? I don't have a lot of, of uh, commercial work. Uh, the main thing I do is that I have a camera with me and I take pictures. And then when I have the pictures, I figure out what I'm going to do with them. And, and then you offer them web- to the agencies and magazines. No, no, I don't. No, so you could say, and you could say I should have an online, my own online archive. You could say maybe I should go back and do like what they did, did back then. Uh, Kappa and Henneke Jefferson started Magnum Photo Agency. And basically what they did is almost like they organized a handful of, of the great photographers and then said, okay, so instead of a magazine buying pictures from me or sending me to somewhere, they're going to deal with this organization that sells my pictures and organize everything. And that's actually a great thing because you could say, even as a single artist, you should have a corporation and uh, a company. So you have not your own organization that that people deal with and don't deal with you because unless you get hustled around as an artist at all, you will credit you or will do this and that. You can't tell a company that. So so we say my, my model is like I make photos and they're valuable. So I can put them in my articles, I can put them in my books, I can make prints and stuff. Um, I did this uh, project recently, I did the uh, postcards, I actually have, uh, I did 
this is my Paris postcard. I made it like 30 or some uh, Paris postcards. You also made a and video then, uh, about it uh, on YouTube. Yeah, I did. Yeah, and it was just because nobody makes proper postcards. So, and I like to write postcards, so I'm, I'm going to do my own. And I've been knowing known that for like four years or five years that this is somebody needs to make proper postcards. And then finally I did it because I was just sitting there like, oh, I can actually do it. And then I did it. I made like, 100, I think, 110 different versions now from Paris and Denmark and so on. And I started pushing them into hotels and art stores. And then you find out, well, I mean, it's like a, a thing. You say, wow, that's a great photo. And then you go, for example, to a hotel in Denmark and they said, yeah. Or I talked to an art store and I said, yeah, but we do sell postcards. And the thing that people normally buy is local postcards. That's the main thing. Or a postcard with some Picasso or... Dali and something on it. So that also makes sense. And then I had the hotels that they want to have postcards. And then one hotel went into, they're going to make a nice display that goes with the old history of the hotel. And I said, you have to sell postcards or sell stamps also because nobody, you can't get stamps. It's so difficult. And we have to put up a sign on the display, say, write a postcard because people don't know that you have to write on a postcard. They think it's, it's, it's you frame it, you know. <laughs> So there's a whole new revival of this uh, concept, and, and I don't know where it's leading or how much money is in it, but it's just interesting. And you said the next thing is people, oh, you should also make a postcard. And the funny thing was I had, uh, I did this postcard, uh, and I went to Skagen in Denmark. That's like the artist, the north of Denmark, the most northern part of Denmark, where the artists used to hang out 100 years ago. So I went there for a week, and it wasn't that exciting, but uh, I did some photos. And a family in Denmark, they saw one of the photos, and said, wow, can we buy a big print? So they got a big print that is like 180 centimeters tall in uh, the house now. So suddenly, like, I made several thousand dollars on one photo that nobody would see if I hadn't put it on a postcard. Um, Maybe that's the way to so that's put, like, like uh, in information on the postcards and then people can contact you to get to get bigger prints and stuff. Yeah, but it has like the, the website where you say, how do you show your pictures? And now I use them as business cards. So I go, I meet somebody and then I say, yeah, this is, have a postcard. And it has my name on it and my website. And, and, but it's also a nice postcard. And some people will send them. Some people will keep them, you know. But so it's like, in that way, it's a good introduction. Uh, because how else are you going to show your pictures? Like, hey, my Instagram is, it's like, who cares what your Instagram is? You forget the connection, you know. So... And it's actually also interesting because when I was looking at photos to do, that's how I discovered, wow, I have so many pictures from Paris. And it's like, wow, it's so easy to make great pictures in Paris. And that's why I went here. Like, that's why I'm here now, because it's like, uh, yeah, we wanted to see Paris, but it's also, it's a great place to be to take photos. And uh, it's very, it's perfect work, workflow, you know, you, you have, you have uh, okay food and you have nice weather and nice buildings and you can shop and you can walk around and you can make pictures it's awesome perfect business model <laughs> <laughs> so, talking about your pictures and, you have very coherent system of organizing your photos you also made a video <laughs> about it uh how long did yeah. it take you to figure it out was it like because you lost a master shot or something have you ever lost a photo and then you regretted it and then you thought like well i have to come up with some kind of system to keep me organized? Or was it all from the start? I'm, st I'm still working on you could say. No, it's just... Um, um, 
maybe it's me, but you could say from the moment that you start uh, scanning pictures or have digital pictures, you find out how, how, how to organize this. And you could say, I didn't know how to organize uh, slides and films that you put them in envelopes and you have to have some system you can find them again, you know. And you have to have marked each photo that you did a print or that you liked it or something. So, so in that way, it was pretty obvious that when you start scanning or digitizing pictures and you get a few hundreds, that's fine. Then you get to a few thousand. Now it, you, you need a system because you can't find them. So it wasn't so that I really lost them, but it's more like I can't find my pictures or this is a mess. <laughs> and then I started organizing and, and I went through all, and I mean, I have to, I made the survival kits. I have one for Lightroom survival kit. I have a Capture One survival kit. And those ones, maybe 30% is about how to use the software, but the rest is about the workflow, how to organize an archive. And you can say also organize the way that you work, that you edit every day or whatever, in batches and so on, and keywords and so on, and make it future-proof. And also a, a, a great foundation for it is that it's your pictures. So you have to be in charge of them. You cannot put them on a cloud or think that you put you drag and drop everything into Apple Photos, then they know what they're doing because they don't know. And they don't really care about your archive. So you have to take take charge of that. And the sooner you do it, the easier it's going to be. Because we just all stack up thousands and thousands of files. I mean, both work documents and pictures and everything and emails. Uh, so the sooner you have a system, that this is a system you follow, uh, the less work you're going to have to face. Because, I mean, most people, they wouldn't be able to take the photos that took the last 10 years to start organizing. It's like... It's a week-long project, you know. It's going to take weeks, and you don't have weeks to do that. And when you when uh, you select when you select uh, your pictures you want to keep, let's say, or send to your website to your newsletter, then you proceed with editing. And I was wondering uh, how much editing is too much editing. How how do you how do you go around that? I is leaning towards uh, almost no editing, but that's not possible i mean the, the problem is that you have i mean i do have one whoops, camera here was hanging there so that you have a camera like this and it's like it shoots uh, raw files or and you can also shoot jpeg and i actually met people that would buy a when Leica came up with the first monochrome cameras that can do really great great tones then i met people that just shot jpeg files and they were happy with them and you look at it like, mm -hmm. exactly. Instead of having, you have to download the software, you have to learn the software, you have to spend time editing, you're just like, no, it looks great. And it kind of does, but it would look better if you edited it. Mm. And um, and actually have recently, I would have some pictures I took and I just can transfer from the camera to the phone and put them in Instagram and it works. But I still have to edit them later, but, but you would say, well, it's not really the editing I did that make the picture work. It's like the picture is, it works pretty fine, you know. And when the picture so, works, how much is composition and how much is, let's say, good color well, edit in your yeah, eyes? Yeah, but I, I think I think a picture is always, well, it is for me, but I would say almost the emotion of it. And you can say some people would get emotion from a picture of a red wall or a landscape or an, an elephant or a cat. Uh, for me, it's always light and people. Um, so that's kind of like what it is. It's like that's the majority of it is the most you get. But you can say if it's black and white or if it's beautiful colors, that is also a part of it, just like light is a part of it. 
uh, so, so it's a combination of that. And then you can say, when I have my pictures, I import them, then I select which one do I like, and I edit those ones. And then I edit them. These days I edit both in color and black and white, if it's a color camera I use. So I have two versions of it, because you never know what you're going to use it for, which one is the best one to use, or which one fits to that context. Um, and then today, when I use uh, Capture One, that's a very intuitive and fast software. Lightroom is so slow. There's so many weird things in Lightroom that it just makes it slow and, and annoying to use. And then you have in uh, Capture One, I made my own uh, presets or styles. But photos over have like four or five different ones for black and white and four or five different for color. And the great thing about Capture One is when you click uh, style, you're basically done with the picture. Mm -hmm. You might do a little bit of adjustment, but basically you're, you're done. If you go in Lightroom and you apply a preset, then you get like, then it goes in that direction, then you can edit it. So it's just more work, you know. Uh, so I have a lot of things, like I, I would do, I, I did some portrait assignments where it's just like, maybe I edit this like 30 photos, uh, that I'm going to give to the client so I have the color then I make a virtual copy and I just hit my preset and then I'm done uh, so I really like that and I, and I lean towards that workflow that should be easy and fast uh, but you can say a lot of things in photography goes towards that you have to have higher resolution you should have all kinds of possibilities and everything get more and more uh, you can say complicated now you can do this you can do this you can add this filler but why would you do it if it's a great photo to begin with you can say, if you have disturbing colors in a photo that, for example, this case in couple, and there's a blue waste bin behind or a red sign, and that draws your attention, okay, then it have to be black and white, or you could desaturate that color. Uh, but you could say that's the essence of editing, and then the tones will look, look beautiful. You know? So you decide when you see your photographs side by side in the Lightroom, let's say, when you see the color version and the black and white. Yeah, I just go full, man, and wow, that's a good photo. It's, it's almost like on Instagram, you go, oh, I like this one. <laughs> yeah. Like this one. It's kind of like you do that with, with your own, but it have, and, and it has to be fast. And I mean, I talk a lot about it in my workshop and, and other places, and also in those survival kits and stuff. And that, that you can really trust, like, if you work really fast through an archive, even if you're tired and you want to get done, the selections you make is right. And you will see that if you go revisit that and spend the whole weekend going through the same thing in four years, it's going to be the same selections you make. It's not like you're going to find some gold or regret something or even the way you edit is like, you know. I had one picture I did here uh, in Paris uh, a few weeks ago. And it, we already get a title, so it's called The Woman in Red. And it's black and white, so that's part of the fun of it, that it adds something to the picture that's The Woman in Red. But that photo is actually tilted, and I, will, I straightened it in editing and made it look really nice. And then I'm like, maybe I actually like the one where it's tilted, just straight out of camera, uh, nothing really done. Uh, and it's a funny picture because I did five different edits of it with different... Uh, great tones, uh, and it's almost like the most basic one, and maybe even where it's not tilted and cropped, that's the one. Uh, yeah, so I'm gonna try. I'm gonna make like a, a big print of it here. I found uh, there's uh, something called Picto here in Paris, which is a color lab, or uh, it used to be a dark room, and that's where Henrik Ibsen got his stuff done. So I had to make some prints for me that I sold, and then 
I'm just gonna make some fun, like make some prints of stuff. When like I this. saw your editing, I noticed you sometimes crop a lot, even changing like the orientation of uh, from from horizontal to vertical, right? So how do you decide yeah. that either when you take the picture or later in the edit, how do you decide if the picture should be horizontal or vertical? Well, yeah, that's an interesting thing because I have. Well, one thing you say you walk on the street or somewhere, you see, wow, that's going to be a good picture over there. I, I know that, okay, I have to walk on this side so I get this background or a long background. And I get the faces from this and the light and so on. And it's almost, it's not something I think about. I just walk over there because I want the light to come from there. For me, it's usually from behind or from the side. It's never from behind me. Uh, it's just from behind the subject. So it gets more edges. So that is just the building uh thing you know um and and i also know how close i have to be to frame it uh, but sometimes you can't get it and you like oh you, you tilt the camera or something you still all adjust that um and then there's also like i i tend to have a lot of space in my pictures it's almost like i'm back from magazines where you have to leave space for <laughs> it and stuff um and I realized, I mean, you could save if you look for a newspaper or a magazine, you will see a picture of some celebrity, but it's actually cropped down. You can see there's an arm from his ex-girlfriend or whoever it is now, his wife, and they cut it away because it's not important. It's just his face, and that's all they need. And of course, it attracts attention, and you see it and so on, but it's not pretty. And, and I don't. I, sometimes I think like, what am what am I thinking like? But you could say if you cropped it, if you cropped it too tight. You can get it. Of course, you could go back to it, but that's not the idea. The idea is to make a final picture. So it's almost better that there's space. And then for a magazine news, you can crop it down. If you want to put it on the wall, it'll print. you leave it like that. Uh, so that's kind of like the thinking in it. But, but I think I have much more space than others. Uh, but mainly, I have no consideration about cropping or tilting a photo in, uh, in uh, editing. Not at all. And uh, I mean, there is some of the old school where it's like, oh no, it has to be final in camera, and you can see the edges of the frame from the film base. And it's kind of bullshit. And you can say the irony is also Henrik Ibsen's most famous photo is like they cropped away 20, 25% of the left side because it was just a fence, you know. Uh, and that's his uh, greatest photos, no doubt about it. So, and it doesn't matter. It's like it's the final photo people should look at. It's not how. How did you make it? You know, like how, like how how many pictures did you take take to do it? What camera did you do? It doesn't matter. Yeah. You also feel like when we talked about uh, Andre Cartier Bresson, the Place de l'Europe, the the jumping mm. man, uh, yeah. that might be his the most famous photograph. Have you already taken your best photograph? I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> but, if, but if you look at the the great photographers around and almost also in music is like they did the best work when they were young and I've, I've written about this that you have in the song he did that when he just had the camera for two or three years and he didn't know anything you look at the other stuff he did at that time it's it's i wouldn't say it's bullshit but it's like it's beginner stuff he's fumbling around he's trying to figure out and i just said yesterday to somebody because i was looking at this picture in the book and i said wow he must have been so ashamed about this photo <laughs> because it's like it's from he's just walking down and he's taking for a fence and he had to prop it. And 
And I don't think in his eyes it wasn't a great photo because he didn't make it like that. It was just, but it's one enthusiasm, you know, and and, that, and that's the important thing that that's how you make something that's emotional and something in the spirit is that you enthusiastic about it, you know. And you say in music, you don't make great music by figuring out, analyzing hits and trying to make something like this and be really smart about it and have a team of 12 people help you doing it. But you do like Bob Dylan, you just sit down, you light up a cigarette and you play some guitar and write on a napkin and then you got a hit, you know. Um, and nobody can really explain why, but he was just in the mood there, you know. So, so but, but that is actually, you look at, uh, yeah, a lot of the great photographers, they did the best work when they didn't know how to do it. Uh, but I was just enthusiastic about it. <laughs> <laughs> so you could say that. So maybe the most important thing is you keep the enthusiasm. And I actually think, and as I'm not, but, but that is like this thing you always carry camera because what is part of that is that you have the camera with you. But you're, you're not out taking pictures. You're out looking at getting toothpaste or looking for a restaurant or, you know, or you're looking for a parking spot and then something happens, you see the picture and then you take it, you know, and, and, and even here, if I look at, at Paris, I mean, I have the kissing couple, yeah, we just walked by, it's like, wow, that's a beautiful alley, the light was perfect and they're kissing, it almost looks too good to be a really good photo, I mean, it's a great photo, but it almost looks staged, it looks like, uh, it, it's, it could almost be like a studio with a, a fake background, you know, <laughs> Okay. It's, it's almost too good. And we had another one where we walk into a gallery just to see just like an auction house. And then maybe just walking through the room. And actually, first I did a photo of a guy walking across in that room because of great window and light and everything. And then she walks down there and I take a photo of her. And that's the lady in red, you know. Uh, so it's not planned. It's not, I'm not even in the mood to take the photo. But you see something and then you become inspired. And now you're in the mood to take the photo. And you could say, take only one, 100 one hundred fifth of a second. <laughs> That's all the work you have to do. Your photography style is rather, I would say, slow paced, kind of like Cartier mm -hmm. Bresson, looking for like the shapes and stuff. But there are more styles in, in street photography. So I was wondering if you, uh, if you were ever tempted to try, for example, like this flash into your face or this run and gun style or zone focusing, and uh, such styles, you know, in street photography. Yeah, no, I'm not. Uh, of course, I know that when I was young and when you look and sometimes you see something like, wow, they're like hip, you know, I want to, well, I'm not doing that, you know. But then uh, one thing I'm probably lazy, but also like I know, I mean, I know that just taking a photo of a coffee cup on a table with beautiful light and maybe a cigarette smoke or something like that or some nice bouquet, that's like, that's a great photo. And I like doing stuff like that and I like uh, yeah, you could say I almost say slow pain but those elements of it uh, and I mean that is uh, I don't know it's, it's almost like it comes from me but you were saying and everybody can do that research that it's, it, I find it's very interesting that you look at your own pictures what do you like and also what do people like of your pictures so you kind of take that selection and then you go look at what is the common thing with this and then you can look at somebody else, what is the common thing with that? And for, and I mean, I've done it a lot because people would ask about my pictures. I have to explain 
why did I do this that way or something? And one of the things I see is like the light always comes from back or from the side, and it always did. From the first moment I picked up a camera, that's how I photographed. And like, there's no explanation for it. It's just that's how I like to see it, you know. It's almost like a painter that they paint with earth colors or, you know, whatever colors they pick is what, what they like or, or it makes sense to them. So it's the same here. And then you have the frame, you can say often it's upright. I usually, it, it's always portrait, not always, but it's very often portrait mode. And that goes with that, that you have the space above the, for the headline or something like that. Um, and it's not too close, cropped and so on. So that's just the style of how I do it. And then I was looking at this Henrik Jebson book yesterday and I look at it, the way he does portraits. And I, I kind of always liked his portraits. I haven't studied them a lot, but but also a little bit weird. And I look at it like he always put people somewhere else in the frame. He actually doesn't do like a real portrait. It almost looks like and he's taking a picture of the building behind the people. Kind of like architecture yeah, no, shot sometimes. Yeah, but it's almost like some of them is off moment where like there's a, a guy is just almost like, I feel like he's standing in a court and he's just having a cigarette and thinking about something or, or concerned about something. And then he's in the picture, but he's down in the frame here. You know, he's like, yeah. And as well as where it's like, uh, there's this, uh, I think it's a writer where he's on the bridge in Paris talking to another guy with a pipe and it just looks like two people, but that's a portrait. And then you have the whole background here. And I was like, but he had a very good timing. And the light is okay, but it doesn't have a style in light except like he will have soft light, a panorama light coming in or like almost like a no light situation. That's how soft it is. Uh, but he definitely have timing. And it's almost like he caught them in like a moment of thinking or working, but it's not set up and it's not, it's very, uh, I noticed that I never, wow, that's actually a style. I never looked at that. This in this book, there's like eight portraits per page. So I'm like eight portraits next to eight, next, next to eight. I can see, wow, it's like, that's, that's like a style in it, you know, uh, he's trying to do something. Um, yeah, but anyways, but the thing, if you take the selection of your own photos and look at them, and you try to see what is it that people like about it. What do they comment that, that they like the colors or they like the light or they like the, this or that. Or in, my, in mine, it's like that it's timeless. Uh, it could be any time. <clears throat> uh, it's one of the things people say. And then you look at somebody else and you see, and then that would show you that, wow, other people take other pictures than I do. They don't see it the same way. So that could lead you two ways. It could either tell you that they're better than you but what it should tell you is like you're unique and you have to keep doing what you see, what you is, what you think is right, you know. Um, and it basically comes down to simplicity that when you walk around with a camera, you see something, you get the idea, you want to take a photo, you have to take the photo because there's something. And that's a proven thing because I will walk down or I walk with somebody and then there's a picture and you take the picture instantly. But you know it's not perfect, and then you try to perfect it. Now you move over here, and you wait for something else, or you do it a different way, you change the frame. And when you get back, maybe you have 12 photos. The first one you did, that's the imperfect one. That's the one. That's the one that has whatever it was that you saw, you got it in that photo. The other ones is just like trying to, they don't, like the 80% of it. Um, and that's something you could say you have to do it, and you have to evaluate it after see no. You can, it's actually as easy as that. You don't even have to try hard. You just 
You walk around, when you see something, you take a picture. Not when somebody else says take a picture. <laughs> it has to be you sense there's something, you know. And I mean, I guess it's with that, with, with mainly things with architecture and music and something, somebody just got an idea, wow, let me do this. And then it is like, you have to decide to do it and then actually do it because if you just have great ideas that it could be nice to do a building like this, I could nice to somebody did a song like this or nice if somebody took a photo of this. I mean, somebody has to do it and that's you, you know, that's, that's the important part of it, I think. Uh, to execute <laughs> and you do it in, in a true way that, that you like and that makes sense to you. And, and one of the problems that doing things then intuitive and it's almost like I actually had a, I actually had a monk in uh, Tokyo that did my workshop years ago and he was new to photograph. He was invited by somebody else and he looks at me and said, like, yeah, I looked, I looked at your portraits and I liked them. And I said, and he said, you don't really try that hard, do you? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, that's, that's totally right. It's like, it's very, I just, I just do it, you know. But at that point, it could be like, it, go, it could be an insult or it could be like, you're not good enough. But, but that was not the point. He said, like, you just, and it's true, you know, that's when it really works. And when you just do something and you actually don't do any work, you just do it. Uh, you just do it fast or sloppy or whatever, unnatural. Uh, but that's the, what's the most true you, and that's also you will see that's what's the most unique about you. That's what other people can copy because they can they they don't have that intuition. Just they have something else, you know, and they can do something else, and they should do something else. They shouldn't try to do your thing, and you shouldn't try to do their thing. You should do your own thing. Um, and that's something I try to convince people about. It. It's not. I mean, it's not easy. It's kind of like what you should get out of works of it means that you find out you're actually good enough, and if you just have a camera with you and you take photos, you're going to make photos. It, it's not going to be 100%, but it's going to be 10% or 20%, but you're going to make photos and that's the way, way to do it. It's not something you leave the camera home and you go to school or you read books about it and then one day you become good enough. You become, I don't think you ever become good enough, but you just have a camera with you and you take photos and some of them are going to be great. That's like the simplicity of it. You know? So do you believe in this? Uh, I believe it was Anne Cartier Bresson who said your first 10,000 pictures are your worst. Uh, <laughs> it might be true for him when he looks back, but it's not true because his uh, masterpiece was definitely one of his 10,000 first, I'm pretty sure. Uh, yeah, we should make an estimated guess. It would be one of his first 5,000 or less that one but, but i guess um, the idea is no, but, that, but yeah but people have this yeah people have this idea that uh, what does it take 10,000 hours to be a professional or something like that and uh, it's in one way it's right but in one way it's also not right because i mean i know i can't help but you look at music it's like a lot of people they do the best work in the beginning you also have a lot of influences and, and shit going on in the music industry that fucks up people. And in the movie also, uh, you know, don't have that much as a photographer because you don't have people approaching like that. But um, so in one way, it's, it's, it's true. One way, it's not true. I mean, I, I still believe you can make uh, great stuff. But the thing is, as you move on, now you know. I mean, it's so easy for me to take a photo. I don't have to consider focus or exposure or framing. I know what I'm doing and I know what the final result is. Uh, 
and you take in the old days, they shot film, they know this is the film I have in, this is how it looks with the gray tones and the blacks. And we're gonna put on this piece of paper in the darkroom after, so I already know how it looks. Of course, you don't know that in the beginning, you probably, you can't even get the exposure right. So in that way, it becomes easier. Um, and I don't know if it becomes better. And and it's funny because if you look at Hennigan's song, I, I did somewhere, I did like understanding Hennigan's song in 60 seconds, you know. And the thing is that he did start out something with the camera, and then he did his master's and a few other things. And then he did a period of three or four years with the naked Spanish women. So I don't know what that was about, but clearly had a phase in his life. And then he went into uh, going around and doing war and what he thought was important things. And then he went back and he did portraits and he did like his street photography. And you could say when he did the portraits and stuff, he was really good at it. He could just, you could just tell he just, I mean, he could do it in sleep. And then somehow he was so bored with it. I felt like he wasn't whatever doing what he was supposed to, and then he went back to painting. Uh, and I have a similar story like with uh, uh, Dick Zimmerman. He's the one who photographed uh, the filler cover of Michael Jackson. So he lives close by me in the US. And uh, he, st- he was like one of the biggest uh, celebrity photographers in both London, New York, and uh, LA, the different places he were. He photographed everybody back then. But he said he felt he was cheating. It was too easy. <laughs> And he wanted to be a painter, so he went back to painting. So now he's painting, uh, like, port- he's a portrait artist. You know, he was always a portrait artist, but it was kind of like too easy for him. Uh, and I actually, I've, I've done different things with him. We're actually going to do a book or two about him and also about him and Michael Jackson. And uh, and one of the things I asked him about, like, what was your breakthrough? Like, when... And it's actually very difficult for most people to tell what was the actual breakthrough because they think it's something else, but it's actually when was the moment that you knew you could do this or, you know. And for him, he said that was when one of his breakfasts was he has his studio in L.A. and his uh, wife was helping him back then. And he was photographing some celebrities, some important thing, you know, he did E.T. and Spielberg, everybody, you know. And then we just asked, like, so who's on tomorrow? I was like, so-and-so, okay. And it was just a big name. And he was like, okay. And he was just relaxed about it. He wasn't nervous. And because he, he didn't necessarily know what he wanted to do with them. But he knew that as soon as he, they came in or by the time tomorrow when they arrived, he would have some clue what he wanted to do. And when he saw them, he would figure out the rest. And when they were done with makeup, he had it figured out. And then he was just wing it. That's what he says. So I knew I could just... I would just wing it, you know. And that's the confidence with 10,000 photos or something. And that's the same I have. It's like, no, I know I walk out two hours. I'm going to make, yeah, I'm going to make 10, 15 good photos. Maybe I get a masterpiece. And, uh, yeah, it's going to work. And I don't have to take, I don't have to take four cameras to do it. I just take this camera, one lens, and I'm fine. And tomorrow I can take a black and white camera and another lens and, it's still going to work. I mean, I don't need to bring a wide angle or a tail lens or something to make sure I can do it. I'll just have 50, and that's going to work, you know. And if you could only uh, have one camera and one lens, what would it be? Right now, it would be the like M10P. Uh, it's 24 megapixel. It has a quiet shutter, uh, and it's a compact and simple camera, and then a 50 millimeter, 52.0, 1.4, 0.95, but it would be a 50. 
Uh, 50, what is I can so do magical anything. about Leica? How did you how did you actually get into a Leica camera system? Um, well, I started off with Nikon as a teenager, and I dreamt of Hasselblad and Sina. I never got them, or Sina. And uh, then, when I was still doing advertising, I met a film director, and he always had a like a mini looks in his belt. He had a leather pocket for it. Uh, so she was directing stuff, but he always had this uh, like a mini look. So that's a small film camera with autofocus and a 40 millimeter, uh, two 2.4 lens. Uh, very nice and quiet camera, and the lens is amazing on it. And I saw some of the photos. It is like what the hell. <laughs> and then when I came back home, I went to uh, I, I went to I drove to Germany and picked up one up. And then I used that, and when I got into it, okay, I wanted to do like four years later or something. I said, okay, now I want to do interviews and photograph uh, the soul of people. I got a, like an R with a 52.0 as the first one, and then I added a lot of stuff after that. And then digital didn't come till 2006, seven or something. Um, but what I recognized was the lenses was amazing uh, on the Leica. And then later on, you could say I did go with the SLR Leica cameras first because I came from SLR and it's like that made sense they were well built and you know well it's mainly the lenses and then when the Leica M9 came out in 2009 I, I I got I was attracted to the feel of it and everything but I didn't believe I would use it professionally I would use my R system the SLR system but I would use it as a backup camera I always had two cameras two SD cards and two everything for any professional shoot especially back then SD cards would go weird for no reason today uh, you hardly have any of those problems so we have that and then the funny thing was in the selection i like the pictures from the m9 better and the clients also did so in a matter of like less than a year i decided no i'm just gonna leave the other stuff home because that's like a whole pelican case you know i'm just gonna break <laughs> one camera one lens and i can wing it uh so that's that's uh that's what i did so <clears throat> So this is the camera I use these days. So it's just like a Leica M. And I joke that you go into a camera store and you just ask to hold a Leica and you hold this thing and it's, it's a heavy metal, it's brass and everything. And you just hold it for 60 seconds, you go home. And then if you wake up next morning and the first thing you think about is this, wow, this feeling, then you have to have a Leica. If you don't think about it, then you can have a Nikon or whatever. But so there's something about the whole feel of the camera and then the next thing that I feel is really important is the simplicity. That they only have the buttons and they sit on the outside. You can control things. I also have here have the Leica SL and SL2 and the uh, uh, Q2. Uh, but the M is so easy to just walk around with. The SL2 is great in many ways, but it's like it's quite chunky camera, you know. Uh, so it's not the same feeling of. I mean, it's almost like. You could say if you really want to be a poet, you just want to walk around with a little notebook in your pocket and a pen, and you don't actually not carry anything, but you can still work. What do you think about Leica and especially Leica M being perceived as more like a luxury object? Well, I mean, in a way, it's luxury. But then, when people say luxury, like, oh, it's just luxury. No, it. Well, you could say that's like the idea that it's something you don't need. For me, luxury. It's actually interesting because uh, uh, Dumas, the guy who founded the uh, Hermes, he said luxury is things that's worth repairing. And you and, and and I very much agree with this thing. You make something, and if it's if it's made right and great, you want to keep it forever. 
so I think things should be built so they last forever. It's not very popular today because you have to change your iPhone every 18 months. That's the business model. But it would be nice if you just made an iPhone that that's the one. I'm going to use it <laughs> for so the next 200 years. upgrade your Leica M with every cycle? No, and, and I mean, of course, people try to, I mean, like it, of course, try to introduce new cameras every three or four years and then other versions in between and new versions of lenses. You could say they're not down to 18 months. I mean, the lenses is like 20 years and they redesign a lens. The camera is sort of like four years. But you could see when the Leica M9 came out, that was the first full-time M camera, then it just exploded. And I met so many people that got into photography again. They were so enthusiastic about it. And a lot of them still have the M9. And then, of course, when a new camera comes, you kind of feel tempted. No, I'm going to have the new one. And then comes a new one, I'm going to have the new one. So I don't disagree with that. And you can say with Leica that they, from the M9, they had the M240 that got beat you and other stuff. So it's not as sexy as the M9. And then the M10, they just, no, let's remove everything we can. We remove the video, we remove the buttons, we remove this, we make it simpler and simpler. And that's back actually to the original Leica feeling that it's very simple. It's very durable, uh, and you can—I mean—you can drop it on the floor and you pick it up and you keep photographing. And that's kind of where they went back to. Then they made some other cameras, the SL, and that you can put on big lenses and you can do this and that and put in two memory cards. And with the M, they sometimes even go even even simpler with MD or with the monochrome. Yeah, then, can you can you imagine uh, MD being your only camera? Yeah, MD could got could be my own only camera. I mean, I, that's the one without the screen. So I had the first MD two sixty two, and I was almost sitting my pants when I got it because I'm like, <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. And then you go on photograph, and you're kind of like, wow, I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> But I mean, that's like film. But the interesting thing is, then you come home, you put it in the computer, like, oh, okay, that worked. It wasn't a problem. But you 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 don't have a screen, you kind of feel like you can't focus, you don't know if the focus is right, you can't check anything, you know, if exposure right, and, and the thing you learn is like, you actually don't need a screen. Um, yeah, so that, that was fun, and then I went back to, like, having a screen, because the next model, like, the, the, you said also with the M10, then first came M10, then came M10P with silent shutter, and a few improvements, and then came Uh, the M10D without the screen, so it's kind of like too slow. And like, you want a new camera, you want a new camera with the screen. Uh, yeah, but it's it's one of the things you can do, and you can say also you can also go monochrome. And the, you can say the joke is that Leica will make a monochrome camera and it costs more than one that can do color. It's the same also without the screen, it costs more than with the screen. So that's just I, I fucking love that. I think that's hilarious, and and, and it's very agreeable. You could say that. People have a lot of money, want simplicity, and they will pay anything for it. Uh, but the most normal thing for people is they want as many features and as much megapixels and much everything they can get for the money, you know, as a measurement. But 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 as a different quality, the less you get, the more valuable the, yeah, the more valuable it is, you know. Um, so the monochrome, what makes sense with the monochrome is not. People keep talking about this have better gray tones and all kinds of stuff. But that's actually not the point with the monochrome because you can make just as good photos with a color camera when you convert it to black and white. And that's back to what we talked about before. You could actually shoot JPEG straight out of the camera and, and people would love it. They don't know 
that you didn't edit it for two hours. They just think it's a great photo. So the, the point with the monochrome that I see, the ones that hold on to the monochrome is people that they like the simplicity that I see black and white. They get into a black and white mode. They all, maybe almost they believe they're walking around with a film camera on, on their back in the 50s. And that's great. If that puts you in the mood that you're going to make whatever kind of photos you're going to make with it, then that's what you do. You know? is, it maybe, is it maybe something like reading on Kindle versus reading on the iPad? That on the Kindle you can't do anything else than reading a book. So with the monochrome you just can't shoot colors so that makes you more focus on on the black and white yeah you could say it's the same uh, in, a, in a way you could say it's the same like you bring a book you know but you only have one book so that's the one you're reading uh you bring a kindle you can download another <laughs> one if you read on your computer then you have emails and everything popping up you can share and copy paste and what have you um I, th I think in terms of like simplifying your life, that's that's the important thing, you know, that you want to simplify your life. And I mean, I, I can see I have that. I actually went back to real books now. Um, and I also like to just walk out with a camera and one lens. I don't have a bag with me that can have an extra battery in the pocket if I need to. Um, then if you do larger travel, you have to start thinking and how do I organize this, you know, but 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 I want the simplicity, and you can say also I don't use uh, flash, I don't use film light. I mean, I, I can see the beauty. You can make film light. You can put up beautiful light, like a film set. But once you go rent or buy some of those things, you find you have to have tripods, but you have to have sandbags, you have to have power and cables. It's like and suddenly you have a whole truck full of stuff, and you have to carry it in and out. And before you get started and taking a photo, you're already sweating and tired. You want to go home and sleep. Um, and then you have to back it down after. So the thing you just take a camera and then you can move. Look, no, let's go over there and do this instead. That's like uh, that's a big freedom, you know. And uh, and it and fits. It just fits very much with how I work. Should people who are maybe considering getting into Leica get straight to the M system, or is it better to maybe take something like a Q? Or isn't Q just an expensive point and shoot <coughs> compact? What do you think about that? I think the Q is uh, a gateway drug. I mean, it's a great camera in the way that it's designed. It's very simple. And it's very light in the way it has beautiful design. It's very simple, and everything sits where it's supposed to. Uh, then you can say have a fixed 28 millimeter. So, so also you can make this depth of field that that people like. And the lens is great, but you just don't have that. You know. Would you prefer Q with 35 or maybe 50 millimeter fixed lens? In the future, I kind of don't care about it. You could say it's almost like if they made a Q with fifty, I would it would be a problem because maybe <laughs> I would like it so much. So um, I think it, it must come. You know, uh, yeah, I, I'm a, I don't know. I mean, I had somebody saying yesterday, "Can you ask like to make a Q3 with a fifty or thirty or fifty or thirty-five?" And then the funny thing is this, like, else I'm forced to buy, a, like, a CL and these two lenses. I'm like, so what's the problem? Why should, like, a Mega 50 if you're going to buy the other camera with lenses, you know? Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm not, like, yeah, I don't know. They just made a decision back then, the whole design, the size of it, and they go 28, and it works, you know? It's a great camera, huge uh, success. 
and uh, yeah, and, and now you have so many megapixels you can just crop it. So, I mean, it works. It works fine. I mean, as soon as you go 50 or something else, you're going to have a different size proportion. Then you like, you might as well get an M, you know. Uh, and in terms of price, you could say a Q is what five and a half thousand or something, five thousand dollars. And you could buy a, a secondhand M9 or M240 for two and a half thousand, and then put on. You can find a lens for five hundred thousand dollars. Then you have a real, a real camera for less, you know. But uh, yeah, that, that's not how it's going. It's kind of like people they get uh, the Q, and then a matter of day, <laughs> days or weeks later they get an M. Or yeah. something else, you know. Do you have like a M12 wish list? No, I don't. What you would like to I don't, see, I don't, maybe? I'm not. No, I'm not missing it. Like I'm not like uh, I didn't even get the M10R. It's just also because it was in the US and I was in Europe, so they can't ship it. And now came the M10R in uh, black paint. That's really beautiful. So I kind of want that, but but it's not really like it doesn't matter. You know, it's not going to change anything. It's just going to be bigger files. Uh, so, so, so it's kind of like, the, and I think that's like a lot of people got the M9 and then you move to the next camera, but that's one of the, you could say the problems like it would have that, that people who like M, they like old stuff. Why would they get the new one? So of course some get the new one and some new people get into it, but you could say the majority of sale they have is on the Q and the SL system and, and all the new stuff they do. And so that's a, like, that's like, like their business, you could say Leica is in the business of producing and hardware, you know, they're not making photos. So, so they do their thing and then <laughs> we take the camera. We like and some go way back to M3, you know, mm. uh, like it doesn't make any money on that, but then, <laughs> you know, so, it, so that's just. It seems you have a special relationship with Leica, but you are not ambassador, right? So have you ever no, wanted to ambassador. become one? No, maybe in the beginning I would think, oh, that would be great if like it would, what it was sponsoring me and give me cameras or something. But as time went on, it's like, no, that's actually a freedom that I'm not associated. Like, I mean, yeah, I'm not, you could say, so, the, so somehow my business model became that, no, I work for people who pay for my workshop and do my workshop. I'm not selling likers, I'm like teaching them to photograph. And I couldn't care less if they use Nikon or Leica, but I like Leica. And that's why they also get smitten by it. But uh, what it also means, like I have a few instances where somebody wanted to work with me from a Leica store or something, and then they want the workshop to be short, and I want it to be about this camera. I'm like, no, it's like that's not what I'm doing. So, so in that way, it's it's a great freedom that I make my own money, I buy my own equipment, I don't even get discount. Uh, I think I still get ten percent on repairs because I have a professional account, but. I'm not even sure about that. <laughs> um, and I used to get a Christmas card from like in Singapore, but they skipped that. <laughs> so, okay. so, so it's a, I mean, you could say if you look at the whole economy and everything and what I'm doing, then uh, if I get a tripod or a camera, it doesn't make any difference. It's not worth it, you know. So. One of the advantages of Leica M that is often mm -hmm. mentioned is its size, right? But isn't even mm -hmm. Leica M sometimes a little too big? What do you think about cameras such as Ricoh GR or either like iPhones for street photography? Um, I don't, I mean, yeah, you, I see some people can make good stuff with iPhone. I don't like it. Like, uh, I mean, I have an iPhone with me, but 
as soon as I want to do a real photo, I'll take a real camera, you know. And I never felt attracted to Sony or Olympus. I have lots of friends that professional photographers that change the SLR cameras to mirrorless small cameras and like, oh, it's awesome. Uh, but I never had anywhere like, wow, this is awesome. I tried the Fuji. Um, and there's so many design things like the light slips in from the side and that you can see. No, but I think really like you have a camera like this. I mean, yeah, it's like, I don't know, six, 700 grams maybe with a lens. But somehow it still, it still works. That's what you get used to. Uh, yeah. It's, I think a lot of it is habit. You can also say like I used to have an uh, iPhone 10 and now I got an iPhone uh, 11 or 12, whatever it is. Uh, the mini one, because I kind of want to make the phone as unimportant as possible. And, and it's so lightweight compared to the 10. When you take the 10, like, wow, it's like a brick. But it worked for me for, for several years now. So so it is part of the of the habit. But I mean, it, the camera should feel like an extension of you. And that could be the only problem with uh, a Sony or something that has so, so many complicated menus. So it's not an extension. It's like a whole computer you take out. You have to figure out where does what sit or what is the settings or what happened now. But it also comes with like something you use a lot. It's going to feel like yours, you know. It's going to feel like, like as simple as using a hammer, you know. So, and I think that's the important thing. But, it, but generally, you could say one should pick a camera and a lens that you feel attracted to. Not what somebody says, this is a great buy or this is the best now. Uh, and when people ask me, I say, like, imagine you go into a camera store or you go to a camera store and you have five cameras lined up. The one that you like the best, that's the one you take. It doesn't matter if it's five or 500 megapixel sensor or what the view says, because that's the one that you're going to you're gonna connect with and you're going to want to use and take with you. Okay. One of the advantages of Leica M that is often mm -hmm. mentioned is its size, right? But isn't even mm -hmm. Leica M sometimes a little too big? What do you think about cameras such as Ricoh GR or either like iPhones for street photography? Um, I don't, I mean, yeah, you, I see some people can make good stuff with iPhone. I don't like it. Like, uh, I mean, I have an iPhone with me, but as soon as I want to do a real photo, I'll take a real camera, you know. And I never felt attracted to Sony or Olympus. I have lots of friends that professional photographers that change the SLR cameras to mirrorless small cameras and like, oh, it's awesome. Uh, but I never had anywhere like, wow, this is awesome. I tried the Fuji. Uh, and there's so many design things like the light slips in from the side and that you can see. No, but I think really like you have a camera like this. I mean, yeah, it's like, I don't know, six, 700 grams maybe with a lens. But somehow it's still... It still works. That's what you get used to. Uh, yeah, it's. I think a lot of it is habit. You could also say like I used to have a uh, iPhone 10, and now I got an iPhone uh, 11 or 12, whatever it is. Uh, the mini one, because I kind of want to make the phone as unimportant as possible, and and it's so lightweight compared to the 10. When you take the 10, like wow, it's like a brick. But it worked for me for for several years now. So, so it is part of the of the habit. But I mean, it, the camera should feel like an extension of you, and that could be the only problem with uh, a Sony or something that has so many 
complicated menu, so it's not an extension. It's like a whole computer you take out. You have to figure out where does what sit and what is the settings and what happened now. But it also comes with like something you use a lot. It's going to feel like yours, you know. It's going to feel like, like as simple as using a hammer, you know. So, and I think that's the important thing. But, it, but generally, you could say want to pick a camera and a lens that you feel attracted to, not what somebody says, this is a great buy or this is the best now. Uh, and when people ask me, I say, like, imagine you go into a camera store or you go to a camera store and you have five cameras lined up. The one that you like the best, that's the one you take. It doesn't matter if it's five or 500 megapixel sensor or what the view says, because that's the one that you're going you're gonna to connect with and you're going to want to use and take with you. So I know you not only take photographs, but you also teach workshops, right? Can you tell me maybe more? Yeah. Uh, how it works when when someone comes to your workshop? Um, yeah, um, I mean the workshop started when somebody asked, uh, "Can you teach me uh, how to use my camera, or can you help me buy a camera?" And then I started doing very simple workshop in the beginning, where I basically just kind of overloaded people with all days to know about photography, which should make it simple because you know. That is about light, and the camera should control light, then you should it should be easier. And then it people wanted to do photos, and then or time we added editing because they also needed to finish the pictures. So so today the format of the workshop is that we spend one day. The first day we just walk around and take photos as a group, and uh, it's very cozy. And for many people, it's, it's the most relaxing thing they've done for years because they normally have. A job with phones, <laughs> meetings, and travel and stuff. And here, you just have to walk around slowly and look at stuff, you know. And and people are not used to looking at stuff. They're just like you look at the traffic lights and you look at your Google map and you check your messages. But now you just have to look and you're like, wow, there's a yellow wall or something like that. So that's what we do the first day. And of course, there's a lot of questions and people talk and so on. Uh, but it's almost like very therapeutic. Uh, thing to do and and that gets you to take a lot of photos because if you walk around for seven hours you actually take uh, quite a bit of photos and next day we just go into it that i talk about workflow first and then we import and edit the photos so this thing we talk about like how to organize the stuff and like the important things about how to uh, get a workflow to work that's what I go on. You can say most people have the problem that they can't find the picture, so they know that it's a mess and they don't know what to do about it. <laughs> so that's what we get into, and then we get into editing, and and in the editing, like, and then we share a handful of pictures from each at the end of the day, of the second day there, and and it's almost like always people are surprised of which pictures works and which doesn't. But the main thing is that, or uh, the learning thing is that you learn no I actually make some good pictures and you get to see your pictures compared to other people and they walk exactly the same place and you see wow everybody have different pictures of the same thing. Um, so that's actually a very good experience. And then on the third day we do portraits so we use uh, we set the white balance and we set the uh, exposure external light made and we use reflector and so on and we deal with photographing a real person. Which for a lot of people is a barrier they're like, oh there's the eye, you know or whatever that consideration. So you get over that and you find out, wow, if you set those technical things first, the light and the color, when you take the photo, it's it's ready. Like pick 
I could I spot with good light also. Then when you import a computer that you basically don't have to do anything, it's done. You just have to select the one where the timing is right of the photo, where the person looks right, and you're done. Um, yeah, so that's in essence like the workshop, and it's usually like seven, ten, maximum twelve people in a workshop, and it's very compatible. People are very different, but they're very compatible, and you could say most of them have Leica. And you say if you bought a Leica, then you already have some values in life about simplicity and quality that that means that you have a lot of other things in your life that you agree with other people. So there's always a lot of talk and a lot of fun and uh, a lot of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and but that's, uh, yeah, so that, that's kind of the workshop. And then the funny thing, some people will come back and do three workshops in a year. Some will come back two years later. Some can get back because now they want to get inspired again. And some are on a project that the first workshop they want to just, I don't know, learn the camera and then maybe the next one, now they want to get into making black and white or beautiful colors or print or like they have some of their project that now they want to move with this, you know, and, and it's always an interesting group and it's always, even the program is the same, it's different places, different groups, so it's kind of like, it's never the same. And I think for, yeah, I think for like, it's always like a, a great experience, it's like, I, I mean, maybe it's too big a word to say it's a once-in-a-lifetime experience because it's not a once-in-a-lifetime. You can do it several times, but but it's very unique, you could say, as a as a grown-up person that you find other people that are into photography and you find out, wow, this is something that I'm actually in the right track and I, I can do this, you know. It's not that difficult, you know. Uh, that's important when it's something that you really want to do, you know. Because you sit home, you read reviews or something, and you just feel like a smock, you can't do anything right, or whatever, you don't know what. And you find out, no, that's like, I, I can do this, you know. There's, I can find a direction in this, you know. That, that's what I think people get out of it. It's just like, uh, yeah, it's just, uh, yeah, I don't know what to compare, I don't know what else, like you could, <laughs> you could compare to, uh, I mean, it's almost, yeah, you could say it's almost like going to a great restaurant and have a great dinner with great people and you just have a great experience. But here you actually, but, but this is different because you, you learn something, you produce something and you take something away, you become better. And, and the, the general thing is everybody who did my workshop, they take a lot more pictures after the workshop. And some start selling prints. I even had one guy, he made his own gallery. Um, yeah, you just get a lot of self-confidence and, and a lot of production. And that's basically, I mean, everything, as I go on, I say, like, I love when people read my books and they, they read two ways, they go out and take photographs. If that's what you get from the book, that you feel, like, inspired to take photos, that's, best, that's the best that could happen, you know. You're not supposed to sit and read the whole book and then not do photos, you know. Uh, yeah. And having seen that many people at your workshops, how much is... Uh the talent and how much you can actually learn to be good at photography. I mean, it's almost like the, the main thing is self-confidence that you go do it. And we talked about this thing that you observe something, you decide to do it and then you do it. Yeah. So you just buy a camera because you think that's cool, but you actually don't use it. That's not enough. You have to produce something. Um, and I mean, there's a lot of things you could say about people and the cameras. And, and one of the things I learned in workshops is like I would have a group coming in, and then you have some guy. He's really fancy dressed. He, he has style, and 
maybe it's a designer architect or something. So he really has it down. I mean, he can take great photos. And then you have some guy, like great accountant or something. You think, okay, that's like, that's going to be boring photos. But then the interesting thing is when you see the photos, the guy, the quiet guy that doesn't look like he knows how to put two colors together, he does great photos, amazing great photos. And the designer, he can, can, he can fucking hit the frame, you know, it's just like on the right moment. Uh, so somehow it's just not connected with other things. Of course, you can learn from design, you can learn from this and that. But there's a special talent to photograph, and you could, it's almost like your ability to observe is the most important, and then take the photo. You could say if you if you don't observe, if you don't look around, if you don't observe things, how are you going to make anything? Uh, so that's almost more important than having money or having style or have and are the rules important are the rules important to no. learn no the most important just be yourself believe in yourself and just <laughs> <laughs> you see it for your take that's that's the simplicity of it and the camera is also very simple because it's just the light it's just a right with light so all you have to know technically about photography is how to set the focus and how to set the exposure that's all The rest is you, that you decide, no, it's this frame I want to do, I want to do this frame, I want to do it like. But that's an intuition, you know, you know. It's not something you can read in a book what is right to do or rules of thirds. It's like, you know, um, you know when it looks right. And it doesn't take a lot of imagination to preview a photo. So, so if you just believe, no, it should be like this, you know. Then, I mean, it, it is, in that way, it's very simple. Then it's just, after that, it's just, carry a camera and take photos. Now, of course, there's things you wonder about or you want to learn about how to do colors right or you want to, like, you know, uh, the business plan of it and so on. But that's just other things. But the main thing is, like, the first thing you have is the attraction that, wow, I want a camera. And the next thing is carrying the camera with you. And when you see something that you think, wow, there's a photo, you take the photo without a delay. Um, and then you decide which photo you select. It's going to be black and white, a color, what the crop is, and that's what you put out. And then you're going to find your audience, and you're going to figure out a business model for it, what you want to do with it. Okay. So, so in, in that way, the, the more you do, the simpler it should be. I don't. It shouldn't be more complex. It should be logical. You know, that's that's my goal for everything. You know, and, and I mean that's also what you can see in my articles. The book is like I'm not. It's not about rules or lots of words. It's like the simpler the better. I would love to write a book that's three lines, and then that's all <laughs> you need. That's my idea. I'm wondering, in your book, the moment of emotional impact, you wrote, "On dark days, I can look at Elliot Erwitt photos and think I should have done more dogs and humor, or I can look at Helmut Newton and think." I should have a twist of something kinky to my photos, as he always has. Or I can look at Ralph Gibson and think I should have worked with nude women, shadows and textures, as he does. And later you wrote, the reason this won't work is that it's not original. It's something made up and trying to be. So I guess my question is, how to be original if you also have the influences you are learning from, right? Yeah, but that, you could say, I think everybody, like, they get into something and then they look at other things and consider, is that the direction I should go? And 
And a lot of people it's concerned about security, like that they want to find, they want to get a job so they can keep the job. And you should forget about that because that's not what it's about. Uh, but of course you look at Henry Avery and think, wow, he looks really successful. He does dogs and cute pictures and fun, so I should do that. Or you look at Henrik Tepesong, you think, oh, I have to do circuits and squares and I have to have some connection, you know. But that's them, it's not you. And even you see his dogs, that's probably not where he had his personal success, it's something else he did. Um, so, yeah, you look at it, but but I'm not Elliot Erwin, I'm not Ralph Gibson, so I'm not going to I'm not going to do that. I mean, I wouldn't. Well, Gibson walks around now with 135 millimeter and takes uh, texture, architecture, texture, details of light and shadow. I'm like, I would die looking at it. I can't. I don't get any. It doesn't fill me with life to do it. So why would I do it? You know, he can do it. That's like that's what he's doing. He's great at it. So why would I try to be like this? You know, and. Uh, and you can say that goes for everything in life that you have to find out what is that gives you a kick, what is your good at, what is you really want to do in life that is what you should be doing, and then you have to figure out the business model how to 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 work it, you know. I mean the question um, might rather be how do you I mean it's best to learn from your own mistakes, right? But it's maybe better to learn from the mistakes yeah. of the photography masters and how do you detach yourself not to become a copy of uh, those photography masters you, you learn from? How, how do you actually learn from? Do you uh, still learn photography? Do you buy like photography books or something? Uh, yeah, you, you would say that like, I, I think you do look at things and you consider and you notice things. So, so let's just take the, this thing like I'm looking at this book yesterday with Hanging Tip Song and I noticed portraits. Well, one thing I noticed in the business like, wow, he wasn't always that great. You can see how he, he goes for the same face as everybody else. It's not like he was born great. No, he goes through, he points the camera in the wrong places and whatever. He does something that is cheesy or something. But then he gets into it and, and he makes enough in his life that you think, wow, this guy is great. But then yesterday when I look at his porn, it's like, wow, that's what 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 is he doing? You know, why why what's the what's the, what's the thing? What why is he doing portraits like this? Because I always thought he just didn't care or he didn't arrange it probably, but there is so much style to it. So he has very specific things. Okay, so he has the timing and that's something most people don't have in portrait. They just think you point the camera and then but it's not the same person that it changes like in one tenth of a second the whole expression changes so you have to get the right time and you want to have an idea that it's the right person but he put them out in the side and the spaces and put them in it like what the hell is he doing so that's something I, I try to analyze and learn from but not the point is not that people are in the side the point is the timing and and that he's trying to get a certain character or story of the person. And of course, those things you usually went with an article, so it's not like a gallery print, but they would work for that because it makes you think about the person. And there's like this, uh, there's this couple that looks extremely unhappy. 
and they're rich and successful and everything. And, and it's like, it's very untraditional for us. So why did he do like this, you know? And why is it so great? So all those things is something that you can sit on and you see what can I learn from that. And and I think fundamentally it's inspired to something. It shouldn't be, make, you can always make a copy and then you can learn from making the copy. Okay, you have to use this lens for this and you have to set the light for this and you have to do this and that. If it's in painting, you would have to mix the colors and you would figure out that this size works better than this size of whatever you learn from it. But that's a technical thing. But, but what you should learn from it is the inspiration that inspires you to see, wow, uh, that's a real cool thing. And I can I could look at those pictures. Okay, so he picked that timing for that moment. You have other photographs that like to surprise the, the subject or take them off guard and that the, the timing, I don't like that. Uh, I think people should be on. Uh, but it's almost he picked a moment where there's like a pause, where they're like in their own thoughts. It's almost like he's not there, you know. It's like just sitting home and smoking a cigarette, doing something in a book or whatever they're doing, you know, or hanging around <laughs> in conversation. And then that's why he takes the picture. And that's very, very interesting. I haven't figured it out yet, but that's, that's what I'm looking at. It's like, uh, could I have a different timing or a different setting? And what are possibilities if they're in this? You know? So that's so you always have to look for that because I also you know, I look for that in uh, I mean people's lifestyle or architecture or movies. Especially movies, I look at it's very interesting to look at movies. You know? uh, yeah. Okay, so uh, I have one final question for you. I know you also. I know you also judge some photography competitions. So uh, I was wondering, as a judge, what are you usually looking for? And is it, uh, is it different depending on what kind of photography competition is it? Or are you uh, often looking for the same things, no matter what competition you are judging? I mean, the photo competition I've been judging for the longest, I think it's almost 10 years or something, is the ice yarding. And what I like, it, well, I just two, two of the competitions, one is the black and white and one is the premium. So the premium is like, usually colored, but could be color on black and white. And black and white has to be black and white. But what is general for is that uh, I don't, I can't see who did the photos. I don't know. There's no text explaining when it was taken, where it was taken, by who, or what equipment or anything. So it's purely the picture uh, I look at. And the way uh, the composition is judged is that you can say, I have to like the picture. <laughs> and um, and you can say that's very simple. It's kind of like there's this expression, like you play the music you want to hear, you know. And it's the same, I, I make the photograph that I would like to buy. And uh, and there's certain photos that I like, and there's a lot of photos I don't like. There's also a lot of art I don't like, and it's too weird or too something. I don't get it, you know. So it's the same way the photo competition is just like, no, it has to make sense for me. And uh, so, so I think when you look at the photos, they're very... Yeah, I don't know what you should call it, but it, they communicate, you know, they're not, you look at world-class photo, that's certain things. It has to have this drama of laws 
and be something relevant for the time. So it have to be about race or sex or COVID or something. And we have nothing of that. We don't care if it's taken 1950 or which country or what is communicated. But if the emotion you get from the picture is great and then it works and it's it, and it, it kind of like it can't be abstract. It has to be something that makes sense or something that's beautiful to look at something. But it's not a postcard. It's kind of like, wow, this is a great photo. That's kind of the, the spirit of it. You know? um, so that's basically the simplicity of it. And that's also, I did this article, how to win photo competition, where I said, look at different competitions. I look at the winners. Uh, you don't have to do background research and adjust. You can just look at what pictures wins this competition and who submit, like what type of photos is submitted. And if it's very artistic or fine art, it could also be very commercial. Photographers, they have their own competitions or architects have their own. And it's just like, no, I don't fit into this category because my photos doesn't look like that. Then don't submit to it because that they don't like that. They like this style, you know. So in that way, competitions have, have their own thing. You could say, so if you take music, you have this European melody thing we have once a year. Uh, where all the countries compete of winning the we call it the melody grand prix I think in most countries and that type of music is like I would never listen to it in the radio or I, I, it's kind of like I never see it any, or hear it anywhere else than that one time a year so apparently some people play that kind of music and they have a market somewhere but I don't see it you know and then you have Spotify have their hit list or this thing so it's kind of like so if you want to join a platform like a competition, then your photos have to fit into what you think they're looking for, and you have that one. You know? But it should be your own photos. I wouldn't make a photo for them this time. Pick from my archive. Thank you once again for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, make sure to subscribe wherever you're listening to it. Please give this podcast a five-star rating, review, and please take a screenshot and throw it out on your Instagram stories so other people might find it as well. Come back next week because I will be talking with Dotan Sagi about his photography. I'm very happy you are tuning in for another episode of Podcast About Photography. Until next time.